the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary solutions to today's unique challenges. You, my treasured audience, are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour, we'll be exploring the power to change your genetics. We used to think our genes were set in stone, and what you get is what you get. Now, as science evolves, so does our understanding of genetics. Could it be our genetic makeup is limited by our beliefs? Never occurring to us, we can change our expression, so we do not? What would it look like to embrace the power to evolve genetically? What could we accomplish as individuals and as a people should we do so? With us this hour to explore the magical world of epigenetics is Dr. Kenneth R. Pelletier, author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. Dr. Pelletier is a clinical professor of medicine, family and community medicine, and psychotherapy in the departments of medicine and psychotherapy at the University of California School of Medicine, where he's director of the Corporate Health Improvement Program. Dr. Pelletier is also chairman of the American Health Association and vice president with the American Specialty Health. His website, drpelletier.com. That's D-R-P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R.com. Dr. Pelletier, on behalf of our listeners and myself, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Now, I, I have to say that due to time constraints, I was only able to cover about half of your uh, impressive bio. Um, those part that you're currently doing versus what you have done. But within all of that, I didn't see anything about genetics. How did you get interested in genetics? Well, actually, the uh, CHIP program, the Corporate Health Improvement Program, is my mainstay research program, and we develop interventions with 15 of the Fortune 500 companies, with Ford, uh, Dow, uh, IBM, uh, Prudential, et cetera. And uh, we meet twice a year with the medical directors from those companies to develop projects. Well, about seven or eight years ago, the medical directors began saying our executives are all asking about genetics. Should we include that in our annual physical? And they asked me, and I said, I have no idea, because when I was in medical school, all you learned about genetics was uh, Watson and Crick, DNA to RNA, double-stranded, that was end of genetics 101. So I decided I needed to basically learn more. And Elizabeth Blackburn, who's the Nobel laureate in genetics from five years ago, who discovered the telomere, which is a marker for aging in human beings, is on our faculty. So I went to Elizabeth and I said, can you teach me genetics? Can you bring me up to date? And she rolled her eyes and gave a sigh, <laughs> and she said, okay. And she said, but get ready. If you hated biochemistry, which everyone does, you're going to hate genetics because it's even worse. So that was my launch into the last seven or eight years of getting back into uh, genetics and epigenetics. So did you hate it as much as she said you would? It's difficult. It's like learning a foreign language. It's like if you were learning Russian and you had to learn the Coptic alphabet before you could learn the words, before you could speak it, translate it, read it. So it is it's a very complex. It took me probably a year to two years to just be able to read 
the encoded information and research manuscripts coming out in the genetics and epigenetics area. So yeah, it turned out to be very difficult, but very rewarding. I mean, now I'm full bore involved in it, and the Change Your Genes book is really my odyssey from beginning to end to help other people learn and discover what I have, which is, as you indicated, genetics are very modifiable in their expression. Well, it seems like um, the field of genetics has undergone some major shifts in the last 30 years or so. Um, How has the way we view genes in recent uh, times changed? Well, uh, when the human genome was mapped completely about 20 years ago, the assumption was very biological, very deterministic. Uh, We now have all the books in the Library of Congress, and if you just read them correctly, we will know everything about a human being, um, their height, their weight, their eye color, uh, the diseases of susceptibility, how long they will live, etc. And that was the assumption. And then about 10 years ago, there were some critical research, one study by, done, done by a person at Johns Hopkins that we can get into, but there were, there were a number of critical studies that said, wait a minute, there were mainly studies of genetic, genetically identical twins, and they looked at, does one twin having a genetic predisposition to a certain disease mean the other twin will also have that disease? The answer was a resounding no. So, so you're talking, then we started saying, me, you, what, what's going on here? You're talking identical twins, Yes. Yes, identical twins. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And so the question was, well, if the genes are not predetermined, if it's not biological, if it's not reductionistic, what is it? And that's where epi came in. So epi means around, above, or surrounding. And we began to look at what were the epi influences on genetic expression, things like stress and diet, the environment, pharmacology, belief systems, social interactions, all of these variables that determine whether or not a certain gene push in our birth will in fact become manifest or not. How, how much of our genetics is subject to, to the epigenetics? Um, I mean, our eye color, our you know, skin tone, our height, all of those things, are, are they subject as well as uh, whether we're going to be sick? Uh, they are. Um, and that's, a, that's an excellent question because We used to assume that 100% of who we are, who we become, or everything about us as adults is due to uh, genetic programming. What we realize now is less than 5 to 7% of our genetic code is what they call fully penetrant or monogenic, meaning if you have that genetic code, you will in fact manifest a certain condition, you will have a certain intelligence, et cetera. Um, But... Uh, most of the diseases that are monogenic are neurological, and they usually show up within the first 18 to 24 months of life. Short of that, the other 95 to even 97% of who we are as human beings, as adults, is due to epigenetic expression or modification of the expression of the gene throughout our life expectancy. So like is autism uh, monogenetic? Yes. So autism is a neurological condition. Again, it's monogenic or fully penetrant, Uh, ALS, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, other, well, Alzheimer's is even modifiable, but but mainly they're neurological disorders like autism that, in fact, are are monogenic. What what determines the difference there? Well, um, we don't really know, um, but it's, it's clear that uh, genes operate in a matrix, so a gene does not operate. It's not it's a single gene does not determine whether or not a person is going to be autistic. And now, as you know, we have an autistic spectrum, all the way from extreme disability to people being very functional, that are quote autistic, but they're very functional. So what makes that difference? The difference is that the gene that may predispose to autism operates in a matrix. And that matrix will push that expression one way or the other. It will make it more extreme, more fully expressed, or less expressed. And we don't know, I mean, right now, we are in the dark ages in terms of really understanding uh, epigenetic expression. Uh, So we just don't know what governs that expression in its extremes. 
So like Down syndrome, how about, how, where does that fall in the, in the spectrum here? Uh, again, Down syndrome is one of those neurological disorders that is genetically predisposed. Um, so yeah, yeah. But again, but you, can have, uh, you can have different levels of functionality, even if a person is extremely, say, uh, you know, pushed in the Down syndrome or autistic end of the spectrum. The kinds of coping skills that they can learn is they're really dependent on their environment, the challenges they face, the support of the parents and teachers and people around them as to what they can achieve. So it's not a doomsday scenario. It's not you have that gene and therefore you're going to be you know, disabled to an extreme degree. That's really not the case, and that's given rise to all kinds of therapeutic interventions now. Well, like in Down syndrome, unless I'm mistaken, it's not my, necessarily my area of expertise, but it, the age of the mother, uh, environmental factors, there was one whole town where they born uh, a whole bunch of um, autistic, I mean, uh, Down syndrome children were born because a, a water supply got polluted. So there's outside influences that, what, how does that work? It makes them more susceptible? What? Well, you've actually brought up a very important point, is my book title, Change Your Genes, <laughs> is actually a gotcha title in the sense that genes do not change. Uh, they can be damaged, and what you're talking about is genetic damage. So they can be damaged by radiation. They can be damaged by uh, herbicidal exposure like glyphosate, which is the active agent in Monsanto's Roundup. Uh, that's a known carcinogen. It's known to damage genes, and it can be damaged by environmental pollutants, normally or usually the petrochemical nature. So that particular town, if there was a high petrochemical exposure to pregnant women, then their genes were damaged, and the damage resulted in this high predisposition to actually a fairly rare condition. But again, you're, we're talking about damaged genes, not not genes that have a push, and then you can govern the expression, that's when a gene is actually um, uh, extremely damaged and about which you cannot repair a damaged gene. But you can, through um, environmental things, uh, like a good diet, um, good intervention, um, good support, good coping mechanisms, you can uh, mitigate the expression? Yes, absolutely. In fact, diet is one of the most important variables in terms of in influencing the gene expression. Uh, stress is hugely important. Our interaction with other people, our belief systems, meditation, pharmacology, um, the environment, as we've been talking about, both good and bad, um, can have a very profound impact, again, on gene expression. And the question is, well, how does it happen? Well. Each gene is in a sheath, and the sheath are, uh, is a molecular coating on a gene, and the molecular coating are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is a mouthful like all things in genetics when you asked about how long did it take to learn the language. That's one of them. Uh, so these polymorphisms, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, are like rheostats, and the gene is inside the cell. The cell is like a biochemical ocean. So everything, diet, stress, pharmacology, affects that ocean and turns the, the SNPs, they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, turns them up or turns them down like a rheostat on a light. And that's the mechanism whereby the gene is influenced to turn on or turn off or become brighter or become more dim. That's pretty amazing. So we can mitigate it to the point it's almost a non-issue with some of these? Absolutely. I mean, we do genetic testing on patients, and I'm in cardiology, so we'll do testing on patients looking at uh, lipid profiles and lipid subfractions. And you'll find people that have a very high predisposition toward a particular lipid that is detrimental, that if a person has that gene expressed fully, they'd have a very, very difficult, very high risk factor for a particular uh, lipid in their blood. And well, we're, we're, going diet, to, we're, go we're going to have to pick up on this on the other side of a commercial okay. break, <laughs> but it is time for a break. Dr. Pilatier and I will return shortly, so don't you Thank go you. away. 
This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. To all our faithful and thoughtful listeners, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about the ability to change genetics? Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. With us this hour discussing genetics is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. His website, Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. That would be drpelletier.com. My apologies. (laughs) So we were just talking about what turns genes on and what turns genes off. um, And even if we have a damaged gene, that there are mitigating things that we can do. Would you mind continuing with that? Yes. And we were talking about a lipid profile for patients or people. And you may find that someone has a very strong push toward producing a lipid in the body that would be a very high risk factor for heart disease. Well, once a person knows that, then there are things they can do with their diet, with exercise, with stress, with pharmacology that can greatly reduce that risk. And that to me is one of the, when you're talking about the, your program focused on evolution and the evolution of medicine, we're really approaching the next three to five years of what we're calling precision medicine. Well, we'll be able to have much more accurate predictions of what will be helpful to a person lifestyle-wise, pharmacology-wise, even surgically, um, by knowing what their genetic profile is. And once you know, and once you know what you can do about it, then you can make the necessary life-enhancing changes. Not only do we then govern the quality of our life, we actually govern the quantity or how long we will live. Many of these changes actually can push us toward a longer life expectancy. Now, how much is the, your epigenetics um, more of a frequency thing than a physical thing? In other words, does our attitude change it? Do our belief systems change it? Oh, absolutely, our belief systems change it. Um, see, yeah, the, two things. I mean, there's a positive and a negative. So on the negative side, stress has a profound negative impact, excessive stress on the epigenetic expression. And uh, there are two kinds of stress, but that's maybe more detailed than we need. But basically, long-term destructive catabolic stress has a very negative expression on on gene, very negative impact on gene expression. That's the negative side. On the positive side, there are actually two studies, both out of Harvard, um, and they looked at epigenetic expression among meditators. They looked at about 60 meditators over 12 weeks of meditation, and they looked at their genetic profile from at the beginning and after 12 weeks. And what they found is at the end of 12 weeks, all of the positive epigenetic expression in terms of enhanced immunity, reduced inflammation, uh, better cell replication, all of that increased. So in 12 weeks of meditation, the people had altered and changed their genetic expression. So that's one study. The second study <clears throat> was there was a kind of a smart graduate student at Harvard. There are always those. And uh, he decided he wanted to see how rapidly could that change happen. So he took a group of people, divided them into meditators and non-meditators, and had people learn a very basic meditation. And then uh, basically assess those people before and after 15 minutes. So this is 15 minutes of meditation with people who had just learned how to meditate. And what he found after 15 minutes, their genetic expression had moved in a positive direction. So this is a highly volatile system. We are interacting with our epigenetic expression every second, every minute. And the outside expression, if you will, 
um, if you decided to make major changes of the kind we're, we're discussing this morning, the longest amount of time it would take before the new genetic expression would be dominant. It's about 10 to 12 weeks. And, and that gives us a range from seconds, and there is very volatile, so it will change back, to 10 to 12 weeks in, in which it becomes a more permanent change in your genetic expression. Now, uh, how, the question begs asking, how do they assess this? How do they figure this out? Well, there are many basic research uh, gene assays. You can map the human genome. Uh, in fact, probably right now, you can do it right now, actually. It's fairly expensive to map your human genome, but you could map your entire genetic profile for about $2,000 to $2,500. And what that would give you would be your entire uh, uh, Library of Congress, every book in the world. The problem is, which one do you read and which ones can you understand? They're in different languages, different dialects, different ages. So you've got the you've got the library, but how do you read it? And that's the challenge right now is how to read this epigenetic profile. So having said that, there are now about maybe 10 or 12 commercial companies, and I'm not including 23andMe, by the way. I have major reservations about that as a, a genetic company. But um, there are about 10 or 12 companies that actually will give you a genetic profile. And that costs right now anywhere between $150 and $200. And you can make determinations that are really very specific. Um, one of them that looks at the influence you have on foods uh, and blood sugar or glycemic spikes. And it will literally tell you Eat, wal uh, eat walnuts, not almonds, because uh, almonds affect you adversely in blood sugar levels. Almond, uh, walnuts are good for you. So we can now be very, very specific using these uh, genetic profiles. And uh, our research here is really looking at what we're calling a, a, a state-of-the-art tripartite assay. And it's the genetic profile, which is like the blueprint of a house. The second level is the blood chemistry. And it's like when you are building the house, uh, you always have to move a window or change a door from a blueprint. It's never perfect. But the blood tells you what of that gene is then showing up and being expressed in your blood. And the third is the microbiome or the intestinal tract from your mouth to your anus. And then it tells you what's it like to live in the house. What happens when all is said and done? You have a predisposition. It manifests in the blood. The blood then affects the organ system in the entire body, and what's the aftermath of that. And so once, and, and that will be available, I would say three to five years. Now it's a research tool, but in three to five years, we will have that kind of definitive profile. A person can really know who they are biochemically and make choices about stress, diet, pharmacology, much more, um, much more knowledgeably. It's almost like genetic biofeedback, isn't it? So like in, in biofeedback, you're able, because you're able to map what's going on, then you can set your intent and change your behavior to change what's going on. Does it work exactly the same way with uh, genetics? It's exactly the same way. So biofeedback is instanta virtually instantaneous. And the reality is your genetic changes are virtually instantaneous, except it's very volatile. And so monitoring second to second in an epigenetic expression is not reasonable or not possible. It's too volatile. But again, as we've talked about, if you look at over days or certainly over 10 to 12 weeks, you can use this as a feedback system that tells you, yes, the physical activity you're engaged in is good. It's changing your profile. That stress management technique you're working with is altering your brain chemistry. Uh, that diet is changing the inflammation in your body and may be protective for COVID infection or not. Um, so it works in the same way as biofeedback. In fact, it is, in, if you think about it, it's very basic biological uh, feedback, which in the mid-70s was considered to be impossible. And now it's a pro forma uh, medical uh, intervention. It's amazing to me. It seems like, you know, we've staggered through life, um, just going into default, 
And our belief systems that have been passed down for generations even have established how we express. And now you're telling us we have a choice in that. We can change it. Um, you know, one thing one thing that comes to mind, and this is a little different, I want your feedback on, is um, say, for instance, uh, a woman that decides that her mother is not what she wants to be. And she decides that early on as a child. And as she grows, she starts to look more like her dad, act more like her dad, be more like her dad, even the illnesses and everything that break out. Is she actually affecting that change? Well, actually, probably her belief system (laughs) that she's going to be just like her parents or just like her mother, just like her father, is probably governing her turning into her parents than anything to do with her genetics. Because virtually every aspect of her aging, um, her intelligence, her reaction time, her longevity, everything about what we associate with aging, we know we can alter the aging process and we know we can alter the signs of aging. That's very clear. And so when she sees a particular factor, like her father was very hot-tempered or her mother was obese, whatever the predispositions were, once she knows that, she can determine, I'm not going down that path. It may take more discipline with her diet. She may have to study and really practice a meditation in order to be more effective in stress management. But nothing that you've just described dooms her to become her parents. Except her belief that it would. Exactly. Belief systems are very, very powerful. Very powerful. Now, now, now we're, when we're talking belief systems and the power there, isn't that more of an energetic um, effect than a physical one? Well, it's an energetic effect that turns into a physical belief or a physical manifestation. So, for instance, if we believe that we are victims of our external environment and the stressors in that environment, we will be. If we hear a loud noise and we act negatively, that will create a major stress chain reaction in the body. However, if we believe that that external environment, we govern our reaction to that. So a loud noise for one person may be they've been in battle and they have a post-traumatic stress disorder because of that experience and that belief. For another person, it may be they like fireworks on the 4th of July in the United States Uh, or in Paris, they've seen fireworks and they like it, and it's exciting for them, that's a very positive response. So again, it's not what happens outside of ourselves in the external environment. It's your response to it that governs your genetic expression. That's a critical uh, factor. It's the role of choice, and the role of choice is critical in everything we've been discussing. So I'd like we have a little bit of time left in this in this segment. I would like to go into PTSD is has been pretty much untreatable. I mean, we try this, we try that, but people with PTSD tend to have PTSD. Um, they might learn ways to work around it, but it's still there. Is there actual genetic damage from long-term PTSD, like our emergency workers or uh, soldiers or... Well, it does. Uh, if you ha- it, it depends on the nature of the trauma. So you can have repetitive trauma or you can have a single major trauma. All of that affects, again, our biochemistry. And the biochemistry sets up a chain reaction that, that does affect the gene. And the, the problem with a stress reaction like with PTSD, and there are ways in which to modify PSD, PTSD to a very marked degree, and that's not an area of expertise of mine, but I've seen it occur with patients that I've referred, um, is that you can, in fact, modify that. Um, because once again, if you perceive that you have a choice over reacting negatively to that PTSD episode, and you can practice and uh, discipline is the key to that. It's not just recognizing it, okay, now it's over, or reliving it once or twice and, oh, I'm fine. That's not it at all. It takes discipline. It takes professional help. But they, in fact, can work their way out of a significant degree of injury because, again, when a gene is activated to move along a neurological pathway of stress, that pathway will be activated. Most of the time, pathways are... Basically, they they diminish in their sensitivity 
Quite the opposite happens in stress. Once a pathway is activated, it will tend to be activated again and again and again and again. So we wear a groove, if you will, in the central nervous system. That's so hard to we'll change, have but to. It's possible. I, yeah, I would really like to get into that groove in our in our system because it seems to be such a key. But it's going to be on the other side of another quick pause. Dr. Pilatier and I will return to our discussion shortly, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. <laughs> Welcome back in Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge Information Packed past episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the other things I offer, visit my website, www.findyourpathhome.com. Our guest this hour is Dr. Kenneth Pilotier. We're speaking about the possibility of altering our genetics. We were just getting into these neurological pathways. Um, so now we're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, um, how the way the brain ends up being wired impacts genetics and vice versa. Would you go into that a little further for us, please? Yes, it's a complex area, but um, I mentioned earlier that there were two basic kinds of stress. And it, just to map that out, will help us understand the influence of the, the brain and epigenetics. So one type of stress is when it's short-term, immediate, and identifiable. So if you step off a curb and a car honks its horn, you jump back on the curb and you're not hit by the car. That's not a pleasant experience, but it's positive. You owe your life to that response. That's a type one stress response. It's positive, no problem. Type two occurs under very different circumstances. It's when the source of stress is not immediate, not identifiable, and not resolvable. So if you think about it, most of the issues in our daily life are not physical threats, but it's worrying about a deadline or financial concern or a conflict with a, a coworker. Under that condition, all of the perfectly normal short-term stress responses are protracted over time. So a short-term increase in blood pressure becomes hypertension. Short-term increase in heart rate becomes a tachycardia. Short-term increase in electrical activity in the brain becomes anxiety. So you can see how this, this type 2 stress has a, a very uh, negative uh, impact. Now, the primary pathway whereby the brain and gut if you will, or the brain and body interact, is the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is continually interacting between the entire body, the intestinal tract, and the brain. And that's the main pathway whereby these signals are, are interacting. And the interaction is governing, saying you're under stress, so therefore the genes need to express more inflammation or you're relaxed and, and it needs to express less. But that feedback loop is continual. It's every second of every day. So that's how we change so drastically when we've experienced, so someone goes away to war and they come back and they're not the same person. Right. I mean, I, from the Vietnam era, you know, I had cousins, they come back and I don't know this person anymore. They even look different. Um, and they might, you know, try to, back then, you didn't have any much treatment for PTSD. They just lived with what they had. And to a one, their lives were shortened. Um, and we used to think it was, well, they got into Agent Orange or this or that. But I'm wondering if this isn't a big part of it. Oh, unequivocally. Um, you know, what what we know is that changes in external circumstances have a huge impact on our genes. I think that's what's occurred with veterans from, from combat. I have great sympathy for them. We, we see them as patients here. Um, and uh, uh, there's no doubt that the extreme negative impact at an epigenetic level is what we then see as a changed person, mentally, physically, cognitively. Um, one of, to me, one of the most interesting studies that shows how powerful this change can be was a study that NASA uh, actually conducted. Um, surprisingly, NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, has one of the largest databases 
on gene epigenetic expression uh, and, and why that is we can get to. But basically what happened was in 2018, uh, Scott Kelly was an astronaut who went to the International Space Station for a year. And he has a twin brother, Mark, who's also an astronaut. So he had two astronauts, one in space for a year, one not. And when Scott returned from his one year at the space station, they found that 7% is in one year with a change in environment, diet, exercise. In one year, 7% of his epigenetic expression had changed. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a little or a lot, but consider the baseline of the fact that what separates us in epigenetic expression, human beings from chimpanzees, is somewhere between 1% and 2% of genetic expression, one to 2%. So changes on the order of 7% is huge. Um, and six months later, they checked back and they ran another study on Scott Kelly, and they found that about three to 4% had regressed, had gone back to normal, but 4% remained unchanged. Now, we have no idea what that 4% change means. And again, it's as little as one year, much less than in combat or extreme trauma, we have no idea what that means. Does it mean he's aging more quickly, more slowly? Does it mean he has a predisposition to cancer? Has he improved his cognition? We have no idea. And that's why, going back to why is NASA interested, is that's one year. And if we think about two-year missions to Mars, um, would a person, a human being, leaving our planet in space for two years, get to Mars, and be so epigenetically changed that they're a different species? Are they truly a Martian? Now, this may sound fanciful or sort of an Elon Musk um, what-if scenario, but it's very real, and it's something we need to look at. So whether a person is coming out of a combat situation or extreme trauma in a family, there is no doubt that epigenetic expression is changed to the negative. And when we know that and we can test that and we find out what is damaged, then, if, again, as long as it's not physically damaged, but its expression has changed, we can modify that back toward a more positive direction. So when we're working with that modification, and we talked about how our belief systems and those neurological ruts really impact us genetically through epigenetics, if we are taught to stop short stop ourselves when we're just about to go into that neurological rut and go, I've got a choice to live life in a different way. I can either go into stress or I can look around me and say, that was then, this is now. Is that going to change the way epigenetics um, impact our genetic expression? If it's consistent over time. And what I mean by that is you've just described an autonomic reaction and we talked earlier about biofeedback, is that in the 70s, my early research with adept meditators was to demonstrate that people could regulate pain, bleeding, infection, heart rate, uh, uh, that you could, in fact, influence your autonomic nervous system. What you would, would, you mind, would, you mind back, would you mind backing up just a little bit and help oh, yeah. us um, uh, be on the same page? What's an autonomic, what is the autonomic oh, nervous I'm sorry. system? So you have... Basically, in the mid-70s, your medical texts had the nervous system divided into the autonomic or automatic nervous system and the voluntary nervous system, and that they were parallel tracks, and they would never interact. Well, in the, even in the 70s, there was something wrong with that, because if you think about it, you can hold your breath, which is voluntary, but at some point, you get desaturation, desaturation of oxygen, and you'll automatically and reflexively start to breathe. The same thing with blinking your eyes. You can hold your eyes open for a period of time. The eyeball dries out. You have to squeegee, basically, and, and, and moisten the eye. So that's an autonomic reaction. So the interaction between these two branches of the nervous system is what we studied in the mid-'70s and demonstrated unequivocally that you could change it. So if a person has a perpetual autonomic reaction of negativity, the biggest thing that we can realize is there is a choice. And William James, who's the founder of modern psychology and psychiatry, was in a profound depression. And he was able to rouse himself from that depression with one simple realization, which he chronicled in his autobiography. He said he realized that he had a choice between one negative thought 
and the next. And that infinitesimal choice between choosing between one negative thought and another negative thought or a negative thought and a positive thought was enabled, what enabled him to rouse himself out of a profound depression. So it's not just that one exercise. So it's like the 15 minutes of meditation in the Harvard study. That does not ensure that you have now an effective stress management technique. But if you practice and with a discipline develop a skill, and it is a learnable skill, everything we're talking about is a learnable skill. If you do that in over 10 to 12 weeks, that new positive skill will be dominant for you and will ensure a greater health and a greater life expectancy because of that. So that's the the good news, but it takes uh, discipline, it takes practice. So if you and I were speaking now and you said, I want to learn how to play the piano, and I would say, well, you know, it's going to take lessons, and you'd say, well, of course. But I'm always amazed how I have patients that come in and you say, well, you know, this is going to take discipline and practice. And they look at you like, why? And yet what they're trying to do is play something infinitely more complex than a piano, which is the human central nervous system. It takes practice, takes discipline. So the, the thoughts, belief systems that we, A, were conditioned to with our parents growing up can be changed, but we have to learn the practices and use the discipline uh, to repeatedly make different choices. What about the ones that we come in with that were passed down from our parents' parents, our parents' parents? That Those exist as well, don't they? They do. And, and there's a, again, there's a whole subsection called epigenetic uh, expression, uh, intergenerational epigenetic expression, and, and it's a bit longer than we can go into, but basically there are some studies that look at grandparents to parents to children and how much is a genetic trait transmissible from one to the next. And there have been some fascinating findings, like if a grandmother is overweight, it does not necessarily predispose her child to being overweight, but the grandchild, the daughter, the great-grandchild female will have a tendency to be overweight. Um, they've looked at survivors of concentration camps, and they found that uh, the offspring of those survivors are not necessarily more predisposed to a stress reaction. The, gr- the grandchildren have a greater predisposition to stress reaction. So this intergenerational transfer is very real and very, very alive. But again, the same thing begins to happen is if in your generation, present time, present focus, realize that that's a push, that you have a natural predisposition to overreact with stress, and all of us do, um, then that's a signal to us that we need to learn something. And all of us have something that tells us we're under too much stress, uh, tight back, dry mouth, cold, sweaty hands, uh, clenching of teeth, something that tells us you have exceeded your limit to adapt to this stressful circumstance. If you then find a meditative discipline or a practice that teaches you how to enhance that in a positive direction, that becomes your meditation. So there's no one meditation fits all. It's find out what you already do and learn to enhance it. That's your way out. That's your pathway toward better health. So it would appear that with this knowledge, and I, I assume that you're putting together some different meditations and some different skills for people, that we now, for the first time in generations, have the ability to choose how we express rather than being um, along for the ride of our genetics. Uh, absolutely. That, that's why your program, I think, is doing a great service for, for anyone who's listening, is the basic message is that we are not passive victims of our genes. We're not passive victims of our environment or of our past history, period. End of, you know, full stop. After that realization comes the fact that, oh, I have influence. I cannot change everything. It's like an analogy I've used is that you may be a, I'm a lifelong sailor, so you may be sailing on the ocean. Now, you can't control the ocean and the weather and the circumstances of the planet, but you can regulate the boat. There's a lot you can do to influence how well your boat sails and how you survive. And if you get to your destination, it's that kind of influence that we can exert in our lives. 
This is this is just such amazing news. Uh, we're just about at the end of this segment, but on um, the last segment, I really want to get into how can we use this uh, newfound skill to evolve as individuals. You game? Very much. Uh, we do need to take another commercial break. Dr. Pelletier and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion, so don't go away. This is Mission Evolution on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or a guest that you think would be of interest, email us, info at missionevolution.org. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Dr. Kenneth Kenneth Pelletier. His website, drpelletier.com. That's D-R-P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R.com. We were just getting warmed up to address the epigenetics and the impact it can have on us evolving as individuals and as a culture. So if we indeed can change the way we express in the world, how can we start moving towards being all we can be versus a victim of our circumstance? Yes, it's the ultimate question. And there's this one study I think illustrates the power uh, of this. Um, one of the classic studies that we talked about early on was that changed our view from biological deterministic reductionistic genetics to epigenetics. This is a Dr. Bert Vogelstein. He's a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. He's one of the most cited authors in the world in genetic expression. Um, in 2012, he did a longitudinal study or long-term study. He followed thousands of twins. I think there were 7,000 twins, mostly from a a, a Swedish registry of twins. He looked at 24 diseases over 15 years in thousands of twins. Now, that's a huge study. And what he wanted to see is that if one twin had a particular disease, did the other twin have the same disease? Now, if you're deterministic and reductionistic, you'd say, well, of course, they're identical twins. What he found was totally the opposite. So for Parkinson's, if one twin showed up as having Parkinson's, there was a less than 5% chance that the other twin would have Parkinson's. For heart disease, it was 50-50. So 50% likelihood a twin would have heart disease if the other one did. And for virtually all cancers, it was less than 40%. So if a twin had cancer X, did did the other twin have it? Less than 40% of the time. Now that is huge difference, huge variability. That was dependent on the choices that the people were making. And so the choices we can make now are to develop an effective stress management technique. That's something that I think is valuable for everyone. We're all under high degree of stress. Develop a practice. Again, based on your own predisposition, you might like to listen to a sound in your head, a favorite piece of music to notice that your breathing becomes constricted and you need to breathe more deeply. It literally does not matter what it is. Find out, ask yourself, what is your innate stress management technique and learn through a discipline to enhance that. The second one is diet. Diet has a huge impact. So the most negative diet we could possibly have is the white plague diet. So it's white rice, white bread, refined uh, carbohydrates from pastries, um, you know, processed meats. Those are extremely negative in terms of health, life expectancy, and genetic expression, as opposed to the more Mediterranean diet. And a Mediterranean diet, and your, your listeners can find that under Mediterranean diet, is the only diet that has the most data on efficacy for health and life expectancy. It was discovered by Walter Willett, who's in the Department of Public Health at Harvard, 
and found that people who live on the Mediterranean have a lower incidence of heart disease, arthritis, uh, cancers, irritable bowel. And if you go gradually north in Europe, you find when you get to the Scandinavian countries, they have much higher incidence. And he said, why is that? And he found that the Mediterranean diet has olive oil, has fish, not red meat, more vegetables and fruits. Uh, they have adequate medical care, but not excessive. So just following that as a basic uh, dietary practice is is very effective. Uh, another is just becoming physically active. It doesn't mean you have to run a marathon. Uh, you know, we have what's called interval training. So it's 15 to 20 minutes where you elevate your heart rate and then cool off. Elevate your heart rate and cool off over 15 or 20 minutes, three days a week. That's all we're asking. Uh, can have a great beneficial impact on your epigenetic uh, expression. So those are two or three things that everyone can do, and it has a very profound uh, positive impact on the quality of life. The other is to monitor our environmental quality. So looking for exposure to toxic chemicals, petrochemicals, to herbicides, uh, all of those variables. The, again, as you pointed out earlier about the, the uh, a town that I incidents of of, of uh, downs. It was due to environmental toxins. So we have to be aware of that and be politically active to ensure that we're not affected by toxins in our environment. When, I'm glad you brought up environment because another aspect of our environment is how much beauty, how much order, how much um, just being a pleasant environment. How much does that impact us? It's again, I. The, I, I keep using the word huge, but, but it's the only word I can have to describe it. Um, in 1955, uh, Hans Selye, who was the uh, McGill uh, physician who basically developed the whole concept of, uh, of stress, uh, coined the term U-stress, E-U stress. And what it designated was positive stress. And so not all stress is bad. We need stress for stimulation. And the advisable level of stress is when it's pleasant but not overwhelming. So all of us who engage, if you will, in challenges to have uh, positive emotions, forgiveness, um, understanding, compassion, generosity, those sound like maybe, I don't know how, if, how they sound as words, but those literally have an equally powerful positive effect in the body as the negative emotions of anger and aggression and frustration that we more commonly hear about, the positive, <clears throat> excuse me, nurturing the positive emotions are as important, if not more important. So by bringing beauty into our environment, um, lovely music, artwork, um, exposure to nature, uh, growing things, all of those can uh, influence our genetics through epigenetics? Absolutely. And what those do is if, if a person is listening to an opera or music or a beautiful painting or just nature, being outside, even in this, during this period of COVID, what we find is that people who spend any amount of time outside in parks or walks or in their neighborhood areas have a much lower incidence of contracting COVID. So the, the positive uh, impact of, of the environment again, gets inside our bodies. It's not out there. It's not external to ourselves. It enters our bodies in a very real biological way and has a positive impact on our health and life expectancy. So if we harbor negative thoughts, negative emotions, and those we can shortstop if we get the right tools and a discipline and practice, but if, if we harbor, if we choose, actually at this point it's a choice, if we choose to harbor the more negative ones, it actually drops our immune system through our epigenetics? Absolutely, <clears throat> because the uh, chemistry, the catabolic, and catabolic is the destructive biochemistry of the body. So when, when we need energy, your cells catabolize or incinerate uh, our nutrients for fuel. Fuel feel, feeds the body. When we have a catabolic dominance, in our bodies, we are literally self-destructing. We are burning the house around us. Um, not a good thing, obviously. When we have positive emotions, uh, then we kick in with what we call the anabolic or regenerative biochemistry. 
we are literally regenerating our cells minute by minute, second by second, or causing them to deteriorate. And again, this is within our grasp, within our influence, as we're listening uh, right now. We also know if we take a step back, recently there have been more emphasis on what are called the, the blue planet communities or the blue zones. Uh, these are communities all over the planet where people live to be 100 or more. And if you look at the commonalities of all of these communities, they all have the characteristics we've been talking about. They have Mediterranean diets. They have stress management techniques. Elders are always respected. No one is ever relegated to useless at advanced age. In fact, they have a very prominent role in the family. They make all of the decisions. Uh, their foods are raised regionally and without organic fertilizers. Uh, they have a very clean environment. They don't use excessive medical care, and they don't fear death. Um, that's one of the most fascinating things, that when you talk with these individuals, I've known the researchers from this group, that the people, they don't think of death because for them, uh, the onset of the end of life lasts two or three days. When you're 100 years old, you're only going to last two or three days. For 110, it may be down to two days. But they do not dwell on whether they're going to die or not because they're not faced with 20 or 30 years of long, lingering disability, which is what we see here in conventional culture. That's what people fear. It's not fear of death. It's fear of becoming disabled and helpless. They don't have that in the blue zones. So these are models. It tells us collectively and individually, here's a positive direction we can move in. And it has all of the characteristics we've been talking about. So it seems like our, our modern day American culture where we value only the new, only the young, um, only the productive in physical terms has uh, predisposed us to fear death and to fear aging. And therefore absolutely. we do, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. You, you've just, you've articulated it very well. Um, we have a culture that is fixated on, on youth, on physicality, on external achievement. And there are many cultures that simply don't have those values. They value inner experience. They value age. They value wisdom. Uh, uh, I remember we, we did a study in, in actually in Poland and uh, it was a smoking cessation study. And it, we knew it worked because we'd done studies here. And in, in, in Warsaw, it just failed, totally failed. And we didn't know why until we talked to the participants. And they said, did you talk to the grandmother? And we said, the grandmother? What do you mean? And they said, well, no decision in the family is made without the grandmother. And so if you get people, in the, you try to convince people in the family to stop smoking and you haven't gotten grandmother to say stop, you're, you're getting nowhere. And as soon as we engage the grandmothers, it worked perfectly. So again, they, they have a function. It's a very critical function. No one is able, uh, made to feel useless. And very often you hear, and there are more than stories, it's a frequent anecdotes, that a person will say, um, let's have a good weekend because I won't be here on Monday. So they have a sense of when they're going to die. And it's without fear. And it's actually a, usually a celebration around this time of transition. So it's a complete flip of the values we have in our culture, our characteristics of the long-lived, uh, truly happy and fulfilled cultures. And as we live like that, our epigenetics start to express it, and it changes our descendants, doesn't it? Absolutely. So all of, I mean, these are people that for decades have had the lifestyle we we're just talking about. So they have a genetic predisposition to long life. But mm -hmm. the reality is we all do. If you look at the genetics of a human being, the number of times that a human cell is meant to replicate accurately would predict the life expectancy for the human species of about 120. It's called the wow. Hayflick limit. Yeah. A biologist, Leonard Hayflick, who calculated that. It's called the Hayflick limit. So what we have to well, ask ourselves is, if we could live biologically to 120, why are we only living into our 70s and 80s? Exactly. And, and that's the question. That's the question we're going to have to close with because unbelievably, we are out of time. I could go on forever. Dr. <laughs> Pilatier, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Our guest this hour has been Dr. Kenneth R. Pelletier, author of Change Your Genes, Change Your Life.
Dr. Pilatera is a clinical professor of medicine, family and community medicine, and psychiatry in the departments of medicine and psychiatry at the University of California School of Medicine. Don't miss the offerings on his website, drpilatera.com. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for to visit or download is free of charge, so please visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. For more about me, my school, and the evolutionary tools we offer, visit findyourpathhome.com. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world.